are you doing? Hello. From deep cuts to future classics. On location and behind the scenes. Somewhere between reasonable and crazy. It was no more complicated than that. Let's skip intro and find out what to watch on Netflix. Coming up. The fundamental rule of society, don't kill one another. One of the theories about why people consume true crime is they're trying to educate themselves so that it never happens to them. They are hard to watch. They're real stories about real people. And the, the crimes could be committed by people that we walk past in the street. I don't want to brag, but I'm not a psychopath. I feel stuff. <laughs> I don't believe we've met. What's your name? True crime feels like a genre that until recently was always about the Moors in England or the Unabomber in the States. All horrific stories, but from another time. Then, possibly down to a certain serialised podcast, true crime blew up big time. It's easy to see the attraction. Outrageous and shocking stories from towns like our own. About grisly murders, abductions, frauds, or just incredible flouting of the rules. All played out in a way that it figuratively forces us to play detective. Couple that with some perfectly judged cliffhangers at the end of every episode. True crime is addictive. It makes you feel better about your life. It turns us all into Luther or Sherlock. And best of all, the minute you finish the series, you can hop on Google and see the impact the show has had in real life. He's going to kill somebody. Are you ready? Joining this precinct for the episode are some guests who probably all know where Carol Baskin's husband is right now. First up, from the brilliant podcast Drunk Women Solving Crime, which amazingly isn't about your auntie tapping away on a Facebook group about who stole a wheelie bin, but instead, three funny women getting tanked up and setting a criminal act to rights. Everybody spread them for Taylor Glenn. <laughs> Hello, what an intro. Thank you, Donnie. <laughs> Welcome to What to Watch on Netflix. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Next is someone who most definitely does not need a six-pack of John Smiths in order to catch his guy. Peter Blexley is the real deal. He joined the Met in 1978, and 10 years later, he was a founding member of Scotland Yard's SO10 unit, which sounds cool enough, without even knowing it's their undercover covert operations group. Yes, since leaving the force, he's totally blown his cover uh, by leading the detectives on Channel 4's Hunted, writing a load of books and continuing his hunt for missing people. Peter, read me my rights. <laughs> You're not obliged to say anything unless you wish to do so. I'm obliged. Netflix have told me I'm, I'm obliged. <laughs> I thought you probably would um, be. <laughs> and with these two setting up a perimeter, we needed some expertise in the field of making true crime for TV. Danny Tipping really knows his stuff. As head of factual for Snack & Co, he is the mastermind behind the insanely popular I Am A Killer. And if anyone is the workhorse in the operation, Staying back at the station through the night, sifting through hours of footage and fingerprint scans, looking for that anomaly in the evidence to blow the whole thing wide open. It's Danny. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Do you know what? That is what you call dragging out an analogy, isn't it? <laughs> but here we are, Danny. I think my team are going to be interested in me being called a workhorse. <laughs> now, guys, thank you so much for joining us on this true crime special of What to Watch on Netflix. Have you all been in extra true crime mode? In lockdown, have you been consuming even more true crime than usual? True crime is where I live. It's where I've spent my entire adult work in life, either investigating it for real or writing about it, researching it and broadcasting it. It's just simply what I do. And Taylor, what about you? Have you been in consuming even more 
true crime? Yes, I have been, um, both for the podcast, because we've been recording weekly, which normally we don't do, uh, just to put out remote episodes. Um, it's a hard life. I have to drink more. I have to talk more. It's so tough. Your um, poor liver. I know, my poor liver. Um, but yeah, just on the side as well for me, I th- I've definitely been consuming more. <laughs> Danny, how's lockdown been for you on the true crime front? Well, I think like everybody, uh, I've been watching a lot of Netflix, but uh, I think we're at peak true crime now, aren't we? I think there's um, just about enough to go around for, for all the true crime fans. I mean, in fact, and in fiction, it's you can't, you can't escape it. You can't move for true crime right now. Now, I'd love to take it back to your first experiences of true crime before I get into kind of what you're watching now. Because I always find it quite interesting how you kind of fell into it. What was your first foray into true crime? I I fancy myself as a bit of a bedroom detective as I have since I first watched Crime Watch when I was seven. I'd love to know how each of you entered this world of true crime. Should we start with you, Danny? Somewhat by accident. I've been working in television documentaries for the last 20 years and up until a, maybe four or five years ago, we, I'd never never done a true crime documentary. But once we dipped a toe in you know, and the genre became more and more popular, it's become you know, a real bread and butter of what I've been doing. And I just I think it's fantastic stories. And I think what people, well, certainly what draws me to it is that it has all the elements of our favourite scripted dramas. It has, you know, it's a, it's a melodrama, it's a police procedural, it's a courtroom thriller. Um, but they're high stakes, real stories about real people. And um, I think perhaps when I first started making the documentary series a few years ago, I was maybe a little bit sniffy about what a true crime show was, but the, the genre has changed enormously in that time. And um, yeah, I can't get enough. And what about, what about for you, Taylor? What was your first foray into true crime? Did you have crime magazines in the 90s? I had, um, oh, thanks for thinking I'm so young, first of all, but... <laughs> <laughs> I had to think about that. And then I had such a strong memory. Um, So my dad was an English lit major. And so our bookshelf was really snobby. And I thought that he only read, you know, all of the greats. And then I found this box one day that had all these other kinds of books. And on the same day, I was about 11. I found a copy of The Exorcist and a copy of Helter Skelter which is a 1974 book about Charles Manson. I think I read them both in about two days and I was never the same person. (laughs) Um, I went on to become a psychotherapist actually, which is what I did before I went into comedy. And I suppose I could blame that moment for those particular choices. But yeah, I was just, I'd never, I, you know, I was so young. I'd never been exposed to anything so dark and fascinating and horrific and, you know, I was scared to turn the pages, but I couldn't stop turning the pages. And I think, you know, as Danny said, the genres changed so much, but the fascination definitely hasn't. And Peter, your your fascination, your your interest in true crime, where did that begin? Well, I started off by committing crime, unfortunately, something I'm not overly proud of. Um, I was a product uh, mainly of a single parent family. My dad disappeared when I was very young. My mum was working every hour to put food on the table and clothes on our backs. Uh, But, of course, once she disappeared off to work, she didn't know what I was doing. And I wasn't turning up at school regularly. And uh, I fell into some questionable company. My life was at a crossroads by the time I was about 16. Was it going to be a life of crime? My mum didn't want that to be the case. So one night when I came home, there was an enormous policeman sitting in our flat. 
that my mum had organised to come round there and talk me away from a life of crime and into the police, which is exactly what he did. He had the application form, I filled it in, and a a few short weeks later, I had a pretty severe haircut and became a police cadet. (laughs) Amazing. I mean, what a transition story. That your... Your origin story is better than Spider-Man's. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to say it panned out the way that it did. My police career was astonishing, scary, and didn't pan out like I wanted it to. But, you know, it, it my life has been just immersed in, in true crime. I've caught bad guys. I spent 10 years undercover pretending to be a bad guy. You name it, I've ticked most of the boxes. And aren't you aren't you currently trying to find a missing person in real life, Peter? I am devoting the rest of my entire life to my hunt for a man who is wanted in connection with two separate murders, a man called Kevin Parl, P-A-R-L-E. And he's been on the run for nearly 16 years, and quite frankly, enough is enough. It's been the subject of a BBC podcast, Manhunt, Finding Kevin Parle, forgive the plug. Um, It's the subject of my next book, and it has become my life's work. He really needs to be found put in front of a court of law so that he can answer the allegations made against him. And that, as long as I'm drawing breath, could put one foot in front of the other and can hit a keyboard, that is my life's work. Give Taylor a bottle of gin and she'll solve it for you today. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you think we are so addicted to true crime? What do you think it is about that genre that we can't get enough of? We get asked that question as a podcast more than any other question, and particularly why is it that women are the biggest consumers of true crime? I, I think as a woman as well, not to start another sentence, as a woman, um, but, you know, we're... We're taught about predators from such a young age. We're warned about all the dangers that are out there, but we're also given mixed messages like be really polite and smile. And I think I get fascinated by how did somebody's vulnerability get preyed upon? And one of the theories about why people consume true crime is they're trying to educate themselves so that it never happens to them. Because, of course, that's the that's the worst fear, isn't it? That you become one of these victims. The fundamental rule of society, what enables it to function, is a very simple rule and easy to understand, and that is don't kill one another. Now, in the UK, every year, only 0.001% of people break that fundamental rule and take somebody else's life. They are a tiny, minuscule proportion of our society, and therefore... Our fascination with those who break the fundamental rule is a deeply harboured ongoing one, which just builds on the reasons that Taylor gave. But that, I think, is the basis of our fascination because, quite simply, those who take another person's life are just not like us. Danny, what is it about what you're giving us that we can't get enough of? Well, I, I think the fact that they are, they are real stories that... You know, in other scenarios, could could have happened to you. These aren't far fetched or fantastical. Uh, they're real stories set in communities very much like ours, whether they're, you know, in the middle of Texas or or East Grinstead. You know, they, this could be this could happen to us or people we we, we love, and the, the crimes could be committed by people that we we walk past in the street. I think people are fascinated. There's three things, aren't there? This who who was it that committed this crime? How did they do it? 
and then you know why they did it and i think the psychology part and more and more in, in the shows that we've been making people really want to understand the motives i think it's, it's a lot what peter was saying it's the you couldn't possibly imagine doing it yourself so it's hard to understand how somebody else could and i think that's endlessly fascinating that that it's very complicated and dark psychology that people are drawn to and and peter mentioned that you know we're drawn to the fact that most people just aren't like that you're kind of living vicariously through this thing that you would never experience ordinarily how then do you get the people that actually participate in the making of these programs what's in it for them when you speak to a killer for example are they are they doing it for for redemption are they doing it for exoneration what, what do you find the motives are for the people that are actually part of the programme? Well, in uh, We Make a Show called uh, I Am a Killer, uh, which is on Netflix, which starts, every episode show, starts with a, um, thank you very much, um, a convicted murderer telling their story straight down the lens. Um, and these are all people, every episode of I Am a Killer features a, a killer that has uh, admitted to their crimes, accepted responsibility for them, um, and it is in any way, shape, or form denying their involvement in the murder. Um, so they are quite often they, they don't get the opportunity to tell their side of the story. Uh, very often, most of them are looking for some kind of redemption or forgiveness. Uh, yeah, and and the chance to to tell their side of the story, and and that's not to say that they're excusing them themselves, but to to discuss um, and communicate and explain the the factors that led them to the the place they were physically, mentally, at the point they committed the crimes, because quite often they're very different people after 10, 20, 30 years in prison. So I think it's the chance to tell their story, to engage with people and, and try and explain their actions. I was convicted for capital murder. I just fired a shot. I strike him with the axe. Started stabbing. I said, gonna let me tie you up or I'm gonna kill you. I don't feel bad about it. And Taylor, of course, Danny's show is centred around people that have confessed to their crime. But a big fascination in true crime for you, for me, is those crimes where you kind of don't know who has committed it. There isn't somebody holding their um, hands up and saying, oh, I'm the killer. What is that, do you think? What is is that thing that has has become of us where we all fancy ourselves as desktop detectives and we think we can, if we just watch enough episodes... We can figure it out. Yeah, um, that's a really good question because we do seem to think we're all, I like desktop detectives instead of armchair, actually. It's much (laughs) more highbrow. Um, Yeah, I mean, we all like to think that we're smart and we can solve problems. And if we're just given the info, we can sort this out. But what I think is crazy is that since true crime has exploded, potentially reaching its peak as well, that some cases have been solved because of programs that are put out and new information does come to light and people do come forward. Um, so I can only think that that's playing into people who are kind of delusional about it and <laughs> think that they're great detectives because they're like, wait, they solved that one. New info was found. I'll be the next one, the next star. Peter, do you, as somebody who who's solves crimes for real, do you feel like we are encroaching on it? I think everybody thinks they can now do your job, Peter. No, I I embrace all of this. And my concern is that the police are a bit late to the party with it. Now, I'll give you a a very much first-hand account. Um, Just a few weeks ago, before lockdown, of course, I was in Liverpool once again um, looking for Kevin Powell. And I have a dialogue 
with a detective chief inspector from the Merseyside Police. And I had one, uh, had a meeting with him together with my podcast editor. And that very day, they had had students from the College of Policing in Liverpool and they had been discussing my podcast because my podcast is very much about informing people and hopefully as a result of what they hear or however they may be motivated, they get in touch with me and tell me what they know when they saw Kevin Parle, what he said, what he was doing, where he was, who he was associating with. That's all the kind of information that I quite frankly crave and need if we are to bring his time on the run to an end. And so the police are already, by by what they tell me about our podcast, they are listening, they are examining it, they are perhaps thinking of using it as a tool, a collaborative tool, but I fear that by the time they do get on board it, the popularity may have waned. Let's hope not. Hmm. And I guess with programmes like uh, Don't F With Cats, there's proof in the ability of vigilantes to just figure it out with little to no support from actual authorities. Yeah, well, let's drop the word vigilante, shall we? Let's let's use the word investigator. Oh, I love that. These boys and girls were investigating legitimately. They, From the benefit of of their desks, uh, they were investigating it and they did a frankly remarkable job. And that was yet another occasion where law enforcement were very slow to pick up on just how useful they were and just how much information those investigators possessed, which the true detectives didn't. There needs to be collaboration. There needs... These voices need to be heard because, you know, the more brains that are applied to solving a problem, the more likely you are to actually get to solve it. I was on Facebook one day. And then I found this video. I pressed play. It was the worst video I've ever seen. Thousands of people looking to find this guy. There was a tidal wave of leads that were coming in. I wasn't going to stop until I found him. Clearly, this video is not the end. Something bad is about to happen. Danny, I'd love to talk to you about um, the actual making of a show. Yeah. Because you are you are in that unique position of being on the side of creating what we can't get enough of consuming. How how are these shows made? Do you like who approaches who, for example? Do you go out trying to find a, a murderer that's willing to talk on camera? That's, yeah, well, I, yeah, well, without simplifying it, I mean, that's exactly what we do. Uh, for the first series of um, I'm a Killer, we spent uh, the best part of a year in correspondence with um, convicted killers, mostly on death row across the States, um, all in written correspondence, so it's all done by letter. And you can imagine... You know, we're based in London, sending those letters out to various prisons and institutions across the US, waiting for those to work their way through the system to the prisoners. Uh, you know, a small proportion of those will respond. If those letters work their way back out of the prison to us. It takes weeks and they might tentatively answer our, our first round of questions. And then we have to build a rapport again in letters. So it, it, it takes a while. And again, you know, a number of those people might respond. It turns out they're not ready to uh, admit their crimes or to discuss them in the way that works for our, our format. And so we whittle down the potential cases. And then, of course, there's storytellers. We're looking for, for interesting stories, complicated stories with twists and turns uh, that will engage the viewers and contrasting stories as well that offer up 
different circumstances, different characters, different crimes. And so from all those thousands of letters, we, we end up with a, a fairly small pool of access and of potential stories to present to a broadcaster. And we're still still having conversations now with, with institutions all over the all over the US. And now some of their friends and relatives of people in inside in the US and cellmates that have already taken part in the first two series are recommending us, if you like. And we're getting, we are starting to get some unsolicited correspondence from, from prisoners across the States, but there's still a, a lengthy selection process beyond that first letter. Um, and some of the letters are, are brilliantly well written. They, they communicate very openly. And some of them are just little snippets of information and we have to divine from that, much like anybody researching a podcast or, or writing a book. You have to build the picture up and some of the stories just, just don't stand up. But we're very lucky that we've got a fantastic team of researchers that get to the truth and we start building a series from there. My God, you must have so many pen pals now. Uh, yeah, a surprising amount. <laughs> and Taylor, as somebody who has consumed many of those series, I imagine, what is the holy grail of, of true crime for you? Um, yeah, and I mean, it, this is a bit off-piste uh, because we, on the podcast, we look at a lot of different types of true crime, not just murder. You know, we'll veer into all sorts of cases. And um, the case of D.B. Cooper, which is a really famous case of a man who um, took a plane hostage and jumped out and some money was found, but his body never was. And lots of people claim to be D.B. Cooper. Um I love cases like that where, I mean, that's where your desktop detective kicks in because you're desperately trying to figure out what happened. Um, so I think sometimes on the mystery side, I go for the lighter stuff. Like you you mentioned, um, don't F with cats. I'm watching my language there. And even as somebody who's consumed a lot of true crime, there are things that I can't touch. And I I made it five minutes into that and I just couldn't. I just couldn't do it. And I still watch true crime in little bits, the way a little kid covers their eyes. And it's a really funny process. Um, like I'm watching the Epstein documentary right now on Netflix, um, Filthy Rich, which is great. It's really well done. I'm I'm gripped by it, but I have to take breaks because I just get, I'm really empathic. I get really overwhelmed. I don't want to yeah. brag, but I'm not a psychopath. So I feel <laughs> stuff. <laughs> That's exactly what a psychopath would say. <laughs> And he and Danny would know he's met, he's he's writing to them all. But I do I do I do think that they're hard. I mean, uh, you know, Peter will tell us more. I mean, he's, he's worked on on the real thing, but we they are hard to watch. They 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 come with a whole shed load of emotions. They're challenging. Um, you, you know, they are they're real stories about real people that have have um, suffered terrible fates. You know, they are difficult difficult to watch. But I think that's that's why we find them rewarding. Ultimately, um, you know, it's not an easy ride. Certainly, I'm a killer. Um, they're, they're hard shows to watch. I, I'm amazed that people have binged them in the way that they have. Don't Fight With Cats is, isn't an easy watch. Uh, you know, it, certainly up front, the, the initial crimes. Mm. Um, they, they, are, they are hard to watch. And if they weren't, you, yeah, mm. as Taylor said, you'd have to think about why it isn't. But Peter, are they hard for you to watch? As somebody who has seen so much for real... Do you are you desensitized to true true crime, or are you also watching through through your fingers? No, I'm I'm not desensitized at all, and I know many cops who investigated way way more murders than I ever did, and never became desensitized. Which brings me quite brilliantly, uh, and thank you for 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 raising this with me onto the whole subject 
of the victims. This is we are now in the 21st century. Um, and I'll just pick up on what Taylor said about Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. I binged that over the weekend and it was an utterly brilliant piece of television. And I'll tell you for why, in my humble opinion, because it provided such a platform for the victims' voices to be heard. In fact, Epstein was a bit part player in the whole story because it was the victims that we saw. From young Shauna, who was abused when she was a, a, a mere young teenager, a young lady who told her story with such eloquence. It was absolutely wonderful. And forgive me for, for picking her out. There were wonderful victims giving their testimonies, having their voice heard. Because at the end of the day, I've walked away from work whereby the killers were going to be glorified. I've turned work down, and trust me, my bank account would tell you I'm not necessarily in a position to do that, but I will because it sticks in the back of my throat with when there is glorification to the point of fawning over serial killers, for example. For me, it's about the victims it's all about the victims. And Danny, as I watched episode one of I'm a Killer, you'll forgive me for saying this, but after about six or seven minutes of James Robertson, you were about to lose me as a viewer. But then, of course, you brilliantly turned the storytelling onto what really was an important subject, which was close management, the system by which Robertson had been held in prison. And then, of course, you had me debating with my wife the whole lunacy of a US penal system that can actually reward somebody for murdering someone in close management. And, of course, I pay deference to Mr Hart, who was Robertson's unfortunate victim. For me, it has to be about the victims. The victims have to be front and centre of any true crime show, because if they're not, then we are giving airtime to the wrong people. Yeah, and you're, you're seeing um, Robertson's an interesting case in point, that each, each episode of I'm a Killer isn't about the murder or, or the murder necessarily. Um, every episode has uh, interactions with, with people that are intimately involved in the case that you know felt the weight of those crimes. And... In nearly every episode, we've got friends and family members of the victims who are there and are participating, and that's a really key part in our sort of selection criteria of stories. It's not just great we've got a killer that's you know willing to talk to us. Uh, that's just the starting point. Now we need to go and find the other half of the story. Absolutely, Danny, and I've only seen three, so please forgive me because I've got others to watch, which I will. But the way that the Deandra Buchanan case dealt with Angie, William and Juanita, the victims, was utterly brilliant. And, and, and huge credit to you for putting the victims front and centre and having their stories told alongside the abominable acts of Buchanan. And the other one I saw was Robert Schaefer and Jerry and Denny are dealt with really quite brilliantly in that film as well. So thank you, Danny. You, you, you know... You're the, the proof of the pudding, really. You echoed everything that I would want to see in a true crime show. Thank you very much. Um, I think that's our, the responsibility, isn't it, of a documentarian or a filmmaker or indeed a writer or podcaster is, is to try and represent the story in an even-handed manner, to give people the opportunity to tell their side, but then to make sure that we present the flip side, the other side of the case, um, and to try where possible to give a, 
the full picture. And I think what the true crime community, the, the binge watchers and the, and the true crime fans want is the opportunity to decide for themselves and to have that debate you were describing with your wife um, or your friends is to get into that. How does that make me feel? What do I think was really going on there? What was his motive? Is that a fair punishment or, you know, or, or haven't we gone far enough? Do you feel the weight of that responsibility as a, as a filmmaker, the weight of that responsibility to, I guess, constantly remind yourselves that pe- people have died in the the, the making of... Uh, absolutely. There's... um. They're difficult, as I said earlier, they're difficult shows to watch, but they're also difficult shows to make. And we're constantly reminding ourselves, you know, that these are stories about real people. The victims are very, very real. Their their friends and relatives obviously live on. Um, you have a responsibility, as as all filmmakers do, to try and be as truthful and um, and transparent possible in your storytelling. Um, and it is a there is a, a responsibility. There's an episode of, of I'm a Killer in the second series where the, the killer, Toby Lynn Williams, shoots, shoots two people in a robbery. The wife dies, the husband survives, and, and he's in the show. So some 30 years later, he's in there talking about the wife he lost and, and how he feels about it now and how he feels about his wife's murderer, the man that shot him and left him by the roadside to die. And I tell you, we've got a hardened team of, of documentary makers, but when those guys went and shot that interview and spent time with Johnny, the husband, I, I mean, I've never seen anything like it, the phone call afterwards. Um, it was it was very difficult. So they are, they're not without their challenges. They're complicated stories to tell when you're trying to present the most balanced picture you can. Guys, this is honestly so fascinating. As somebody who kind of just watches the shows to just unpack them in this way is has been incredible i would love to know though what true crime shows you guys are watching and what your big recommendations would be taylor on netflix what what is the or, or or the few true crime programs you highly recommend well i'm gonna double up because i think that filthy rich is a must watch and i think it's very timely and Um, Yeah, it sort of comes back to the why. And I'm glad you brought up the different layers. I think it's really reductive to call true crime fans voyeurs and that they're just sort of after the gruesome details, because I think it just brings into question so many more issues, Um, justice, injustice, inequality, power, privilege. um, All of these things are brought up in uh, Filthy Rich. It's done really well. As we've talked about, it's very victim focused. um, So I highly recommend that. Even if you have to watch it in 10 minute chunks like I did. The disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein is dead. Did he kill himself? Was he killed? There was something happening here that was bigger than just Jeffrey Epstein. Peter, what is your your big Netflix true crime recommendation? I echo everything Taylor said about Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. It is a it is a must-watch. It is utterly brilliant. But having started my talk about I Am A Killer in a slightly what could be perceived as a disparaging way, Danny, and it wasn't, let me tell you, I watched three last night and there is a powerful issue to be discussed and debated within every story. If you take uh, Deandra Buchanan, for example, it's a whole thing about drugs. And, of course, for me, I'm passionate about 
the need for drug law reform and all of that. So for me, that 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 showed that up quite brilliantly, and and it opens up conversations. I would like to think amongst people that are watching it. And going back to mention again the Robert Schaefer case, he was convicted of shooting two men dead. They were uh, two gay men, and of course, what what. Uh, Danny's film brilliantly revealed was that Schaefer himself had been the subject of child sexual abuse. So it throws all of that into the melting pot. So if you don't only want to be informed, but you want to have a subject to debate and debate and debate, then please watch Danny's I Am A Killer. Danny, uh a, a great endorsement there. Yeah, thank you. No, uh, well, that means a lot from somebody that, you know, knows what he's talking about. So uh, I appreciate that. I, th- I thought Don't Fight With Cats was was brilliant um, and very, um, you know, it was, just, it was just a very different take on, on the genre, a different starting point, which I, I really enjoyed. I haven't seen Jeffrey Epstein, but I'm definitely going to now. Uh, after after Taylor and Peter's endorsement, but I think uh, you know my fascination with true crime sort of bleeds over into um, to drama. I think uh, I think a lot of people have come to true crime from drama, but I I kind of seek it out now in you know from the documentary side. And I just we finished Ozark this week, the third season of Ozark, and um, I I mean I know that I'm not exactly uh, you know it's not exactly breaking news but if anybody hasn't seen the third season it, it starts slowly but absolutely brilliant uh, and of course that has all the elements of, of true crime we want there's um, uh, drug lords and illegal gambling circuits and the odd murder we moved here to start over and it's been hard Wendy sometimes if you don't move forward you die and, and seeing as we're we're a kind of uh, segueing into Netflix drama, now I fear I'm going to mention a show that probably everybody's watched, but White Lines with my former colleague and a man I respect and admire hugely, Danny Mays. Please watch White Lines. It is a roller coaster. Please do. And Kel Spellman from White Lines is in episode one of this new series of What to Watch on Netflix as well. I came to find out who killed my brother. He disappeared off the face of the earth 20 years ago. Everyone here had a reason to hate Axel. They were Axel's best friends. They all seemed pretty suspicious. You are in deep shit. I enjoyed that segue, actually, into true crime dramas. I feel like there are so many things on Netflix which don't actually sit neatly under the true crime umbrella, but are actually true crime. Like Tiger King. I feel like so many people... I've kind of lost the fact that it's a bit of a crime show. Yeah. Well, I think the characters dominate uh, Tiger don't they? They're, so it's, it's sort of elevated beyond the true crime bubble, which I think is uh, a, a very good thing, by the way. But it is effectively a, a true crime show, isn't it? Yeah, do you think that like, we spent so much time laughing at Joe Exotic and his mullet that we forgot that this was actually a real crime. Were people laughing at his mullet? I think they were. Uh, yeah, there's a, of course there's a real crime. There's a, there's a, an attempted murder for hire. There's a, a very uh, dubious uh, missing person slash murder case that bubbles throughout, um, which we probably haven't heard the last of, I would imagine. Tiger, tiger 
strange bit of missing information, though, that he was a police officer himself. And I found that out after I watched the whole series and I couldn't believe that wasn't mentioned. What? Sorry. Who was a who was a police yeah, Joe officer? Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic was a police You're officer. You're joking me. Yeah. Not that's at the time of filming, but previously, uh, and that felt sort of important to me. <laughs> that's a big that's that's some episode one information, surely. Yeah. Yeah. Now you are talking to somebody here that during my undercover career used to play the role of being a contract killer. <laughs> Can you imagine what I was thinking as I saw their pathetic, ludicrous attempts at, like, you know, hiring a hitman? Goodness me. Surely, Peter, you can you can be the one to figure out where exactly Carol Baskin's husband is. I'm trying to find Kevin Parle at the moment, but once I've found him, then I'll switch my attentions, perhaps. Next on the list. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I just said, wouldn't it be wild if we had actually said the location on this episode? Like we've mentioned uh, East Grinstead. I, I don't know why. I don't know why East Grinstead popped into my head, by the way. But it sounds like the sort of place where unlikely crimes happen. Is there some subliminal message creeping through here, Danny? Follow the, yeah. follow the clues, Peter. Well, we are we are we are working on a new series at the moment, but it, uh, it doesn't take place in East Grinstead. Mm. Is it about DB Cooper for Taylor? I well, I, I did smile when Taylor mentioned. I love, I absolutely love the DB Cooper story, and I, I'm fascinated by people that cop to other people's crimes or come forward yes. claiming to be uh, in missing persons cases. And there's kind of a whole plethora of aren't they of unsolved missing persons or unsolved murders where people have come forward yeah. claiming to have been either the missing child or, or the murderer. And I, I think there's a real interesting psychology Absolutely. to that as well, quite apart from trying to gain notoriety or any reward. What, what would drive somebody to confess to a murder or as, assume an identity? Mm. That's, that's really interesting. But D.B. Cooper's got everything. Yeah. Well, it looks like we may have found the subject of Danny's next show and solved Peter's missing person uh, file. So uh, yeah. I think this has been a successful episode of What to Watch on Netflix. Guys, thank you, thank you so much. much for joining me thank on you. the True Crime special. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you, Dossie. Go forth and solve the crimes. <laughs> Well, since we're talking about breaking the rules, I thought I'd get someone on who's so informed it's a crime. Oh, God, that was bad. Gina! I thought that was great. (laughs) What a good segue. Gina (laughs) from Netflix HQ. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. How are you? I'm I'm very well. I'm very much in the true crime mode. So if you don't mind getting out Exhibit A... What do you recommend for us to watch this weekend? Okay, well, I've really, really, I've dug in deep. I've dug deep to find you lots of things. New, oh, everything, I've got it all. So first thing I'm going to give you, a new film called Eurovision Song Contest, The Story of Fire Saga. Hear me out, basically. I'm intrigued. Basically, it stars Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams, and they are an Icelandic duo who are trying to get into the Eurovision Song Contest and win. I can't tell you any more than that, but it is as bizarre as it sounds, but it is a genuine... I really enjoyed the film, so give it a try. Will, Will Ferrell is Icelandic? Yes. He, yes, he's from there. That He plays an Icelandic character. And I'm sorry, if that alone does not make you want to watch this... The music is great. What, I don't know what you're looking for on Netflix. Yes. Will yeah. Ferrell is Icelandic. You can try and hate it, but it genuinely is a great Sold. film. Sold. <laughs> Sold. Try as you might, mate. You're going to love it. 
Um, what else have you got? So I thought I'd also, on the topic of films, give you an older film that has come onto the service, okay? So, I don't know, speaking of music also, if you're a fan of Mamma Mia, if you like Mamma Mia, we've got Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, on the service. And who doesn't love a sequel? Exactly, exactly. But if you don't like musicals and you're like, actually, I want to go for something a little grittier and you like horror, again, everyone knows I'm a chicken, but if you like horror, Hereditary, Ari Aster's classic... Is on the service. It's Will, it's Will Ferrell in it. No. <laughs> well, then I'm not, I'm not interested. <laughs> okay. Move on. Move on. All right. All right. Fine. If, I don't care. Fine. If fine. Will Ferrell's Will not, Ferrell in it, not in it, but I if don't you care. do like horror films <laughs> and you don't want to be pressured by Dottie saying doesn't like it, then give it a try. Um, and the last thing is we have a new season of Dark. So we've got season three of Dark. This is a German original for Netflix. People have compared this to Stranger Things. It's like sci-fi. And again, don't want to give too much away if you haven't ever seen it. Um, but it involves a child disappearing. It's got time travel, suspicious people who are like kind of strange, all of that kind of stuff in one really great. Give it a try. Season three is out tomorrow. And it's German. So, danke. You're very welcome in German. <laughs> Please, I mean, we've had we've got Icelandic movies and German drama. So next week, bring something Finnish. Okay, sure. If you might, or Nor- Norwegian. No problem. We'll do. We'll see you there. Well, that's it for our true crime episode of What to Watch on Netflix. Be sure to join us next week, where we'll be talking movies. See you then. What to Watch on Netflix is hosted by me, Dottie, and is written and produced by Jamie East. Editing and additional production comes from Cup and Nuzzle. What are you watching on Netflix? We'd love to know. Get in touch with us on Twitter at Netflix UK. 